Welcome to Conversations in Process, hosted by Jay McDaniel and co-sponsored by the Cobb Institute and Open Horizons. These conversations explore a way of understanding and living in the world that emphasizes the continual becoming and fundamental interconnectedness of all things. But they're also intended to provide an ongoing interaction in which the stories, insights, and wisdom of each conversation partner can expand your horizon and enrich your journey and process. In this conversation, Jay visits with the Reverend Dr. Rebecca Parker. Dr. Parker is an ordained United Methodist minister in dual fellowship with the Unitarian Universalist Association, where she has been a strong advocate for LGBTQ full inclusion and racial justice. She was a professor of theology and president of Star King School for the Ministry for 25 years, from 1989 to 2014. Through her leadership, the historically white liberal school was transformed to become a multiracial, counter-oppressive institution. As an emerita, she is now a noted feminist theologian and author, a poet, a musician, and a lifelong advocate for social change. A graduate of Claremont School of Theology and student of John Cobb, she is the author or co-author of several books, including Saving Paradise, How Christianity Traded Love of This World for Crucifixion and Empire. Dr. Parker is currently a board member of the Braxton Institute. About her work there, she says the following. Legacies of violence, terror, and trauma continue to bring anguish into the world. Now more than ever, people of conscience and love need to do the hard work of theological thinking that deconstructs religion that sanctions violence. We need to rededicate ourselves to the creation of life-giving theologies, justice-making religious communities, and joy-infusing spiritual practices. This is the calling to which my life is devoted, and I'm grateful to be a part of the work of the Braxton Institute, which advances sustainability, resiliency, and joy. Well, hello, Rebecca. It's so good to be with you. It's good to see and you. And I've known you for, for uh, many years. Mm-hmm. And I know you as a musician, a seminary president, mm-hmm. a minister, an author, a theologian, and other people know you in that way too. Uh, so what I'd like, where I'd like to begin is to ask you to take us to the beginning uh, about your childhood and the roles that music and religion played in your life early on. Sure. Thank you, Jane. It's and you can add friends to that list of identities. So I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, Washington State. When I was born, my family lived in a little tiny town on the coast of Washington called Hoquiam, right at the edge of the temperate rainforest. So I was born into a world where you could see the forested hills everywhere from town and where almost all days were shrouded in mist, misty rain, fog, and the the smells of the pulp mill and the sounds of the foghorns, the fishing boats going in and out of the harbor out, salmon fishing in the Pacific Ocean. So my sense of the world was shaped by that very early experience. My dad was the minister of the Methodist Church in Hoquiam. My mom um, was a was a devoted minister's wife. My parents thought of the ministry as a family 
commitment, and they were true co-workers in the ministry over many years. My mom was also a wonderful pianist, and my father, a quite good jazz saxophone player. So some of my earliest memories are of how peaceful and lovely it was to go to sleep at night while my mother was playing Brahms or Haydn or Bach on the piano. And she began to teach me piano there in Hoquiam. Uh, I must have been three or four, and I'd sit beside her, and she'd show me how to make the notes. So I began to learn music before I learned to read, and I think of music as my first language. So I grew up over uh, those years. We moved from Hoquiam to other small towns in southwest Washington, and my father served a number of congregations and then became a district superintendent, working with many churches. My dad, Bruce, was a Boston personalist social gospel liberal, and my whole extended family was made up of progressive Methodist ministers or musicians or teachers. And I gradually came to understand that over my lifetime, all I have done has been all the things that my family shaped me to be, minister, musician, teacher, uh, church, church woman, I would say. So the religion of my childhood was socially engaged, intellectually uh, careful and responsible. Uh, I always thought religion was a matter of um, of disciplined thinking, uh, uh, committed living, application to life, and public engagement with critical social issues. So we campaigned for open housing to uh, resist white supremacy when I was a child. My father spoke out against the war in Vietnam as a preacher and started a counseling center for the way soldiers coming back from the Vietnam War were impacted by what now we would call um, post-traumatic stress syndrome. So the war, um, racism, and then later the ecological crisis, sexism, heteropatriarchy, homophobia, all these issues to me as a Christian were the things one engages with on behalf of creating a just and abundant life for everyone. So that was my childhood was um, happy in many ways, but it also had some trauma outside of the family that I wrote about in a book, Proverbs of Ashes, that my friend Rita Brock and I wrote. That tells about um, the more hidden side of um, suffering I experienced as a child. So I knew both suffering and a very meaningful, joyful life, family life and church life and community life. Maybe that's enough because I could talk all day about my childhood. In the setting where you grew up, it it sounds like the natural world was, was present. Um, Yes. All the time. Did that have an influence on you as well? Um, the rhythms of nature, the colors, the textures? Absolutely. And um, we, because we were a preacher's family, we, were, we had modest resources. So for vacations, we took our homemade knapsacks, uh, uh, backpacks, tents, tents, and hiked through the Olympic Mountains or went to the Pacific Coast clam digging. 
And my parents built a little retirement beach house on Puget Sound next to my mother's parents, which is where we are now building our own retirement home, same land. So the forest, the mountains, the cascading streams. And um, as a child, my grandmother was committed to teaching her grandchildren all of the names of all the birds, the animals, the trees, the plants, the seaweeds, the wildflowers, um, everything that we could see. So we would go on long walks, identifying everything and um, learning to observe closely um, with reverence, really, the natural world. And, you know, for the beauty of the earth, for the glory of the skies, for the love which from our birth over and around us lies, that hymn captured everything. Yeah, oh, that's great. Now, I heard you give a talk the other day in which you talked about both being called by music and being called by social justice. Yes. By the and could you tell a little bit about when did you experience that? Was there a conflict? And when did you begin to experience that conflict? Yeah. So I loved music. And though I started the piano, then I began to study the cello when I was about 10. And I had heard um, Pablo Casal's recording in the Bach cello suites. And I, that music just moved me to the core of my being, and I wanted to learn to play it. If I did nothing else with my life, that was my first sense of life purpose, was to learn to play the Bach cello suites on the cello. But um, also, my father used to sit his children all down on Sunday dinner and say, the secret to a happy life is to find out what your gifts are, what you are good at, and then to dedicate them to the service of something larger than yourself. And um, I found that a very persuasive message. And I was so concerned about the problems of the world. I didn't see how a life devoted to music was going to end um, racism, stop nuclear war, um, stop the destruction of the environment, uh, bring equity for women with men. Um, I couldn't see how a life devoted to music would be consistent with dedicating my life to something larger than myself that was for the good of for the good of humanity. So I was really deeply conflicted as a teenager, probably. Um, was when I first became aware of um, the conflict. Uh, and so while I was busy practicing the cello five, six hours a day and organizing concerts and making music with my friends and preparing to go to college as a cello performance major, I was also grappling deeply with what to me was an ethical and spiritual question, which was, was my sense of life purpose devotion to music justified in a world of so much suffering. Um, so I embarked on what I called a thought project and um, trying to think about the uh, place of the arts in 
life because uh, even though music was a very important part of our church life, the choir and the making music together was part of community life. Um, I also was influenced by the sort of classism that the classical music I loved was really just a decorative element for the the uh, wealthy who were um, uh, anesthetized to the problems and struggles of the world. So music seemed almost almost Im- immoral um, in that sense uh, that it was that it. Uh, had nothing to do with the struggles of pain and suffering in the world, but was for people who had all that they needed and just wanted to be entertained. (laughs) So that was my deep conflict. Yes. I really struggled um, with the question, which is what led me to take religion classes as a college student, religion and philosophy classes, all while I was studying the cello. Well, eventually you, found process thought helpful and we'll get there but before we get there was there anything in the religion and philosophy classes that helped you with this conflict quite apart from process thought any philosophers or books you read or anything like that well i um i took a wonderful class on aesthetics from uh, melvin rader at the university of washington and melvin rader had was a friend and colleague of Suzanne Langer, who my father had also studied with Langer. Um, And he also had been one of the, he was an elder when I studied with him. He had been um, blackballed during the McCarthy years as a communist, but he was a great soul, great spirit. And he knew um, a lot of poetry by heart. So when he was, lecturing on aesthetics he would also um often just drift off into reciting poetry in his classes and i loved that exposure to a link between philosophy and poetry um and he introduced us to the aesthetics of stanley hopper and i liked stanley hopper's aesthetics hopper said defined poetry in a way that i have never forgotten he said to create a poem you take one thing and another completely unrelated thing and then you find a way to connect them and that makes a poem <laughs> yeah, um i won't give you an example of that but it's it's a good definition of poetry so yes aesthetics um the study of aesthetics suzanne langer stanley hopper collingwood <laughs> Um, and others. Uh, But really, it was my introduction to Whitehead. I didn't like the phenomenologists like Husserl or the existentialists. There was something about them that just deeply troubled me. But when I began to study Whitehead, I found a, uh, I felt like I had entered the forest of my childhood, an environment of life. Um, well, take, take us there. Take us. Tell us about your discovery of Whitehead, and then tell us about your discovery of John Cobb. Okay. Let's start with well, Whitehead. Well, I I first knew about Whitehead because my father had studied Whitehead, and some of Whitehead's books were in my father's study, which I liked to browse as a teenager. So I had read The Aims of Education before I went to college because I was determined to claim my own education, which I did. Um, but then. Um, 
I had religion classes from uh, Richard Overman, who had been a student of John Cobb's and was a Whiteheadian. And though we were, what I studied with him was the history of Christian thought, his presentation of the history of Christian thought was through the through a kind of a framework that was rooted in uh, process thought. And so when he offered a seminar on process and reality, just to read process and reality, I was very eager to take it and began reading process and reality. And um, I found in Whitehead a, a philosophical uh, system that gave me a way to really delve into answering my question, my conflict about music and social justice or social change. And there were, at the heart of that was the fact that in process metaphysics, um, Whitehead defines the nature of reality or nature of actuality to be very precise, the nature of actuality um, as a process of integration like Stanley Hopper's definition of a poem, one thing and another thing brought together in an integration, you have a poem. For Whitehead, who says God is the poet of the world, the bringing together of things is the process of um, existence itself, uh, of actual occasions. Um, it is the fundamental process of, um, of being itself, which is also impermanent or momentary. Um, so this ongoing process of relating um, the disparateness of the whole universe into, because it's not just one thing and another thing, it's the many and the many. So Whitehead says the many become one and are increased by one, that one then folds out, it's infolded and then folds out into the universe. So this aesthetic process was um, for Whitehead at the core of all actuality. So suddenly I had a link between, for me it was a sudden realization that there was a link between the artistic process, what music does, what poetry does, because it's always about creating relationships, bringing one thing up against another thing to create a third thing, um, that, that what art does is connected to the, the fundamental process of actuality itself, of existence. So it wasn't extraneous. Um, music was not extraneous. Poetry, not extraneous. These art-making activities are an analog for being becoming itself. So that it was very exciting to I me. I see. So... So it solved the problem of, is it merely decorative? Yes. No, it's not merely decorative. It, it is not merely de decorative. It's the fundamental nature of our lives. Yeah. Uh, how did that connect with questions of social justice? Yes, that's a good question. So I, the, way, the way I saw it was that because there was another concept, and this is the one I got from John Cobb. Um, John Cobb's book, The Structures of Christian Existence, is something I read in those religion classes at the University of Puget Sound with, with Dick Overman. And in his book, The Structures of Christian Existence, um, John Cobb 
suggests that there are multiple ways of being and that great cultural traditions embody different ways uh, in a sense of souls or uh, of the soul to constitute itself. Different patterns of being are what he called structures of existence. Um, and it seemed to me that that different, as I listened to music and as I knew the music that I was studying deeply, I felt that different periods of music, different styles of music, actually could be regarded as proposals of ways to be a soul. <laughs> uh, proposals of or, or as structures of existence. Um, and it seemed to me that, for example, Bach's music was one kind of way of being. And Mozart's music was a different way of being. And jazz was a different way of being. I didn't know about all the kinds of world music, or I would have expanded my thinking. But so I thought the arts, um, the arts can shape ways of being. They make proposals as you hear them. And T.S. Eliot says, "You are the music while the music lasts." So you, your soul um, conforms to the form of the music while you're experiencing it. So. It seemed to me that the injustices of the world were problems of the soul. Um, were, and that's a very ancient idea. I didn't really know that then, but um, that um, a, a, a disharmonious soul, uh, that's too simple a way to put it, but problems of the soul. Uh, how could I make that more clear? Um, well, lack of soulfulness, for example, you think about what Hannah Arendt says in um, when she studied the Eichmann trials, Eichmann in Jerusalem. She said that the she tried to understand the profound evil of the Holocaust and the and the people who performed that evil. And what she concluded observing Eichmann was that she couldn't see any overt maliciousness or even unkindness, but what she did see was a what she called a lack of thinking, a lack of a deep sense of connection between the person and the, and their actions in the world, a, a brokenness of connectivity. And um, she saw this as the that evil comes from a soul that has lost that has been shaped. Um, in such an isolated and disconnected way that there's no ethical sensibility of impact on others. Whitehead, in Adventures of Ideas, defines um, evil in its most serious form as anesthetization, the loss of feeling, which he says is the slow paralysis of surprise. So the inability to, so the a problem of the soul that is anesthetized or disconnected, um, that cannot see the other as real, but sees the other as only a projection of oneself. So that kind of isolated narcissism. These are problems of the soul. Okay, may seem like a complex leap, but to me, it was perfectly clear that the soul needed the medication, the shaping, the ministry of arts that teach 
um, patterns of soulfulness that foster connection, engagement, aliveness, rather than anesthetization, um, and a capacity to make relationships that have beauty or vitality to them. And um, that all of the evil and injustice in the world is a um, connects to a lack of those things. Does that make sense, Jay? Oh, it does to me. <laughs> it, it reminds me of Bernard Loomer's yes. notion of a soul with size. Yes. And and how the when we ourselves anesthetize ourselves uh, or are anesthetized, uh, we we lack a kind of soul size. Uh, yep. we, we don't grow. And I do wonder also if injustices themselves don't inhibit or prevent or obstruct soul growth in others too. We can obstruct their, their capacities, perhaps. I don't know. You spent a lot more time with people in trauma than I have. Um, can you link it to the not to the unjust soul, but to the victim of the unjust soul. The, the victim of the unjust soul. Great phrase. Thank you, Jay. The victim of the unjust soul is harmed at the soul level. Um, some people speak of um, the sexual abuse of children as soul murder. Um, or um, others of... Uh, of the injustice of racism is spirit murder. Uh, so the, the, the killing of soulfulness in people is the impact of injustice. Now, the resistance to injustice by those who are harmed requires an assertion of soulfulness, um, a recovery of soul, a, um, uh, a, a deepening of soul. And this is why the um, in those who have experienced the impact of terrible inhumanity um, and um, dehumanizing oppression or harm, sometimes, because this is not a given, but sometimes develop profoundly significant music and art and dance and poetry because it is the medicine that heals um, their souls. So some of my um, African-American friends speak about the dual reality of struggle or suffering and joy. Um, I think Alice Walker said, resistance is the secret of joy. And so the, those who are traumatized also have to assert the agency of creativity, of their creativity, from from within their own souls and in relationship to the communities they are part of, because often oppression is not individual, it's whole communities and cultures. Um, so the arts are um, profoundly important to communities that are resisting injustice. So that's another way you can see the relationship between art or music, poetry, and um, justice. Uh, not 
in terms of the healing or transformation of those who have lost their soulfulness and are causing harm, but in the in the sustainability, recovery, thriving of those who are impacted by injustice. Um, and so, yeah. You know that uh, so often in some circles in conversations on injustice, uh, conversation turns to public policy. Yeah. But you turn the conversation also to soul policy. And, <laughs> sure. And, and that seems to me eminently wise and, and, and wish there were more of it, or, or maybe there's lots of it. Now, Rebecca, you took this way of thinking, this orientation, and um, you became a seminary president. Yeah. <laughs> and you've been a minister. Uh, um, and a theologian, uh, what's it like to think this way and then find yourself, let's talk about seminary president. What What's it like to have this mindset that you've got and find yourself in that kind of administrative world? How do you, how do, you do that? Well, <laughs> first of all, let me say that I had the pleasure of being the president of a small theological school, Star King School for the Ministry. So, and in Star King, the role of the president was as the, was an educator's role. So first of all, my responsibility was to help shape an educational institution and to be an educator or a teacher. So though there was administration involved, to me, the art of administration, uh, was all about how, what you have to do to uh, create and help create and sustain a learning environment, an educational institution, a school um, that enables the recovery of soul. So I thought of education as precisely that. The purpose of education is to recover the soul and to shape the soul, to free the soul, to enhance soulfulness. And by soulfulness, I meant the capacity to experience life with ever-increasing breadth, like Loomer would say, to be open to what is, what's happening, what's going on, what's happening in the context one is in, to the world, uh, to be able to receive um, uh, life and then respond creatively in a way that fosters um, joy or healing or beauty or repair. So this was also a Whiteheadian framework, recept receiving and responding. Those are the those are the life activities to experience and to shape. So um, the purpose of education in my mind, in, in my view, is to um, enhance people's capacity to experience, to see, to hear, to interpret, to study, to be open, to observe, like my grandmother teaching me to observe the square stems of the mint family plants so I knew they were all related. Observation and, and alertness and, and uh, um, resistance to anesthetization, like education asks us to see what's going on with global climate change, not to ignore it, um, to see the ways white supremacy is functioning. So all of that's about receiving, seeing, 
attending, um, and then responding out of the um, out of the agency and creativity of the person, out of the uh, and in collaboration and partnership with others by creating community. So, uh, to me, theological education is about just exactly this: heightening receptivity, heightening responsiveness, heightening aliveness. Um, soulfulness. Um, and so the arts have to be part of the curriculum of a theological school. And Star King School had known this for decades before I became its president. And I think perhaps one of the reasons I was called to be the president of Star King School was because I had such a deep sense of the relationship between the arts and religion and social justice, all of which were important. Um, and um, so Starking always had living, active artists teaching on the faculty, photographers, painters, theater people, musicians, um, so that theological education included learning from practic practicing artists. Um, so, so you can see there was a link for me between theological education and my core um, loves and commitments and understandings. If, if we could talk for a minute about uh, God and, and Whitehead's yes. understanding of God and, and mm -hmm. how did that um, influence you? What, what did you make of it? What do you make of it? What do you draw from it? Um, anything you want to say, I think would be interesting. <laughs> well, Whitehead define speaks of God in philosophically technical terms, um, but also in uh, some metaphors, God, the poet of the world, um, the fellow sufferer who understands. So God is the, in, in Whitehead's framework, and I appreciate this and align myself with it. God is the, um, actuality, the actual, uh, I don't, I'm trying to not use two technical terms, but God is the being, the being becoming being, with the broadest, widest capacity to experience all that is. So I talked about receptivity and response. God is supreme in receptivity and supreme in responsiveness. That's the, that's the supreme being. Um, so God, in Whitehead's thought, is the one who experiences everything with, as Whitehead says, care that nothing be lost. So all, this is, you know, kind of a fantastic notion of God when you think about it. But um, God is the one who has experienced every moment of joy or suffering, every part of, every raindrop, every Every spring blossom coming into bloom, every shift of the tides, every, and in all of the planets and all of the galaxies, in all of the universe or the multi-universes, God, God is the experiencer who holds, so holds and then holds together all that is in such a way that flows that God's holding of all that is. Um, 
moment by moment also uh, then makes available to all the everything in creation, everything in the universe, a proposal of how to be in the next moment, how to hold everything together. So this is the way in which God is an artist making proposals to the universe for patterns of vitality and beauty and life and um, repair, um, justice. So God is the source of justice. God is the source of beauty. But God is also the container, the all-holding one in whom all that has ever happened is eternally cherished. So God is also, the, as it were, the home of the ancestors. All the, God is heaven. God is the kingdom of heaven, the holding of all, all the ones who have gone before us. And there's a way in Whitehead's thinking that this all-holdingness, God's all-holdingness, is an eternal now. Um, in Whitehead, that eternal now never passes into the past. Um, in the Hartshorn Cobb variation of of process conceptions of God, God becomes a historical being where every moment comes to its fulfillment and then passes away and the next moment arises. Um, that's a there's we could go down that path to Jay or other process thinkers, but What's so beautiful in Whitehead's conception of God is this all God's all holding of everything that ever has been. God as the kingdom of heaven um, means that um, all, all that we have lost um, that's passed out of our hands is eternally held uh, by God. So God is the one in whom not, nothing beautiful or good that has ever happened is ever lost. Um, so this is a comfort. This makes God the companion of all our grief, who um, in whom all good lives eternally, but also the companion of all our struggles, uh, who provides us with the imagination, the proposals, the resource we need to inform our agency and creativity in a way that responds to the world in the direction of greater justice or beauty. So well, so when you when you just described God, mm -hmm. and by the way, that's the way that makes sense to me too. Um, mm -hmm. um, I can see you and your eyes kind of lit up. Um, <laughs> and so there's something beautiful um, about that image of a deep soul, a wide soul. Yeah. Um, some people are attracted to process thought because it seems to offer um, a solution to the problem of theodicy. Um, so the issue is, you know, if God is good, why is there so much suffering in the world and it comes as a, a breath of fresh air to hear that maybe God is not all powerful, all loving, yes, but not all powerful. And that's why they turn, why, why they're attracted to process thought. I didn't yep. actually hear that in you. Maybe that is in you. But what I heard in you was more of the beauty of it than the solution to the problem of theodicy. Um, 
Was I mishearing or do you want to say a word about that? No, you weren't mishearing. Um, I, I have to confess that the problem of theodicy has always seemed to me like an intellectual problem. I, the way you just, I mean, I, and I, you know, I believe in a vital intellectual life, so I don't mean to put down an intellectual problem. Um, but, you know, if God is good, how come there's evil? That's like, how do you solve a, a, a contradictory conundrum? Um, I, ha- I have no um, feeling for that question. <laughs> I just, I can't, I don't feel that question. Um, maybe because I, maybe because um, uh, I was not raised as a kind of liberal Christian who saw God as, as the, as the all controlling, all, um, you know, as the authority um, in, in the kind of liberal Christianity based in Boston personalism, God was a source of good and beauty and and justice, but not, um, not the, uh, uh, the omnipotent, not the all powerful, uh, judge of everything or the controller of everything. So I, I never thought of God as the one who determines everything. So you, you have to think of God as determining everything. If you are going to think that there's a, um, that God could change all evil and injustice. So I thought of ourselves as human beings as having responsibility as agents of history, um, that was the actually the religion, the progressive Christianity of my childhood, saw us as responsible for the way we shape the world. So I was, I didn't think God was made everything happen. <laughs> I don't I, I, think I, everything I, happens for a reason. I just, and if God doesn't make everything happen, I don't have a, I didn't have that dilemma. So. Right. I, I, and I, I believe that that's a sincere struggle for people, uh, but it's only a struggle if somewhere deep down you have been convinced that or of a, a notion of God as the one who controls and determines everything. But Whitehead, in Whitehead, every occasion is self-determining. So the universe is a plenum of self-interconnected self-determining actualities. Um, so there's so many agents and actors in the universe. Um, God is not the only actor. So I, um, I, I'm with you on that one too. Um, and actually, I grew up a Methodist. Yeah. And, and I never heard that either. So my wrestling match was never against that image of an all-controlling God. I, yeah. I didn't have that battle, but I thought yeah. God was, was good. Yeah, uh, it was good <laughs> and, loving, and loving. Not a bad place to start. Yeah, R- Rebecca, I'd like to turn. Um, I'd like to ask a question about soul growth for a second. I uh, mm-hmm. just your understanding of soul growth, and the question's really very simple. Um, what is the value of solitude in soul growth? And how is that related to the value of community mm. in soul growth? And, and let's assume that there's a place for both. Um, but do you think people can have too much community? Uh, yes. And solitude? 
Um, can you just say a word about the place of solitude in, in, in the process of soul growth? Um, Rebecca Parker understood. <laughs> um, it's a somewhat amusing question right now, Jay, as we are in the, as we're having this conversation, we are still in the pandemic and many, many people have been isolated and alone, some and, and quarantine for months and months. So the question, can you have too much community may not be the question of the moment, but can you have too much isolation or solitude? At any rate, um, I think that you can have too much community. That is, um, because we are relational and communal beings, um, our, com our, our relationships, our families, our if we have a religious community, but also our cultural context, our class context, these are all a kind of communities that form how we are. And very few of us are radical individuals, despite the fact that we have a culture that believes in radical individualism. Most of us think what our community thinks, feel what our culture feels, see. Um, we, we mostly behave like our group behaves. Um, we may have some, you know, individual quirky variations, but but we are really um, socially constructed and social beings. We're like, you know, the redwood forest. There might be, you might think there are a dozen trees, but all the redwood trees are one, really one tree. <laughs> so when is too much, when is community too much? Because it's a given reality, our social connectedness. Um, but any culture, in it, every community has its its cultural norms. Any culture is going to have things that it excludes that need to be attended to. Um, white supremacy culture, for example, ha has qualities that make it um, harmful to um, the larger human family, and not all that good for whites. Those of us who are shaped as white. So, you know, I would say racial identity is a communal identity. Um, so um, we have to experience diversities of communities to get a perspective on our, sometimes on our own community. You have to be able to step out, or communities, you have to be able to step outside of a social group, a community, a family, a church, a religious tradition to um, gain perspective on it and see where its strengths and limitations are. Um, so that's a requirement of a, any justice-seeking person um, or community. So um, solitude is one way we can, the cultivation of solitude, of an inner attentiveness um, and inner awareness can be one way of stepping outside. Because, you, you know, in the... In the Buddhist, some of the Buddhist training is a spiritual training of, um, a, of an inner attentiveness to um, what some Buddhist teachers call view. The, 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 the what you're putting on, the view you have of things. And you have to become aware of your view um, to be uh, actually to enhance your compassion. Um, to be more free, to live, you are unliberated if you are only shaped by um, your community. 
Um, but we don't, we can't live without community. Um, so, uh, but you could have, I, I remember hearing John Cobb give a lecture years and years ago, which was on the sin of group loyalty. So we can be too loyal to our clan, to our class, to our political party, to our form of Christianity, to our national identity, to our racial identity. You can be too loyal to those things. Um, who is it who spoke about being disloyal to civilization and loyal to ourselves? I think that was, maybe that's Adrian Rich. It's a feminist principle. Um, you have to step outside of patriarchy as a woman. And how do you find a space, an, an other space? So um, solitude, the cultivation of solitude is partly uh, the cultivation of a capacity to have some perspective on your own location. Um, so as to reflect on it. I would connect solitude also to the Jewish practice of Sabbath keeping. Um, and that for six days of the week, you're immersed in the world of work and culture and responsibilities. And one day you stop everything. You don't do any of those things. And you have a space of reflection or actually distance, disconnection that allows something else to come in. Um, some sense of what is some perspective, some perspective. That's a few thoughts on solitude. And, and oh, well, I think those are wonderful thoughts. And they're very helpful. Mm -hmm. um, can you say a word, uh, Rebecca? And I'm, I'm just going to use the phrase organized religion. Mm -hmm. um, your hopes for it, your despairs concerning it, uh, both, or... Um, Wrong way to put the matter. Um, but speak to the issue of organized religion for a second. <laughs> well, there was that great architect who said about religion, why organize it? <laughs> but um, I, I, I actually believe in organized religion. I believe in institutions. Um, I, I spent 25 years as the head of an institution. Um, institutions take care. They take stewardship. And, um, and organizations are how we intentionally shape things like um, community and relationship and purpose and value. Um, uh, a forest is an organization. Um, <laughs> I think of organization as a natural, uh, as a life, life function, a life system function. Um, uh, and in, an organizing of interactivity, uh, an organizing of resources, um, um, a, a building of buildings, a creating of homes, um, and um, an economy isn't, you know, nobody asks about organized economies. <laughs> but economics is an, is an organizational system, our economic system. So um, we live by organizations. Um, and uh, I think it's James Luther Adams who spoke about the power of organizations and the organization of power. So, uh, um, so organized religion is is uh, 
a much more in-depth, intentional, and collaborative activity, uh, human activity, than is disorganized religion, also known as spirituality. <laughs> That's That was a, I'm sorry, gratuitous remark. Uh, Houston Smith once said that the reason he believes in organized religion rather than just being spiritual but not religious um, is that when there's an earthquake in Haiti, he cannot write out a check to organized to spirituality, but he can write out a check to the United Methodist Committee on Relief. So organized religion is how we organize for good, how we organize for accomplishing things. And also um, my friend Patty Lawrence, who I worked with for years at Star King School said, institutions and organizations are also how we pass things on from one generation to another. So organizations also have to do with, organized religion also has to do with the stewardship of tradition and heritage across generations. It's not, and that stewardship is not just a repeating generation after generation, but a receiving and transforming. It's another aspect of receiving and shaping or creating. So, so I believe in the importance of organized religion um, and the power of organized religion. It's a power that what, that can cause tremendous harm. Um, and it can cause tremendous good. So I do not believe religion or spirituality. I'm really not opposed to what people call spirituality. I just prefer to speak about religion and organized religion. Um, that now I lost my train of thought. Um, the, uh, but the, the um, so never mind. Whatever I was going to say. Uh, Houston Smith uh, also. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, another quote from Houston Smith, uh, he said, a lot of people uh, say uh, religion would be a pretty good thing if people just didn't get involved with it. Uh, right. But he disagreed with that. Yes. He said, uh, w without organized religion, uh, good ideas would never gain a foothold in history. Uh, exactly. They, they would just kind of come and go. Yeah. And so that's that's to your point that it shepherds the best. It can shepherd really good insights and practices generation yeah. to generation. Let yeah. them gain a mm -hmm. mm -hmm. And the, the arts work this way too. Hmm. Um, you know, I, as a young child, I was musical. I like to sit and pound on the piano and I would make things that sounded like music to me. But only as I learned the traditions of music, the forms of music, um, the heritage mm -hmm. of music, Mm -hmm. Learn to play the music of others became part of the community of music. Uh, could I contribute something that had any meaning other than to me in a in a completely isolated way? It's just it's also like language. None of us have, well, very few of us have just an isolated personal language. <laughs> like it's communal, it's collective. Um, yeah, so I guess what I was going to say was I don't think of religion as an unqualified good. Religion is not necessarily a good at all. It can be very harmful, and often is. Um, and I think a lot of people who are opposed to organized religion, who say they want to have religion, have spirituality outside of organized religion, are are sensibly and reasonably reacting to the harms um, that they have experienced or see in the world from organized religion. 
But the problem is not that it's organized. The problem is what it has organized. Well, Rebecca, uh, this has been great to be with you today. And um, is there a question that you wish you were asked that I didn't ask? Are you asking if there's a question yeah. I wish you'd asked? <laughs> you know, there's one thing we didn't speak about that is part of all this that I'd like to at least mention. And that is the place of um, the importance of ritual, which is an art form or a form of art making. Um, the place of ritual in religious life and um, the relationship between ritual and the arts. And this is one of the things I've been very dedicated to in my work and in collaborative, my collaborative theological work with Rita Nakashima Brock was um, to really lift up uh, the, the place of the sacraments of communal worship of um, ritual activities that are one of the ways our souls are shaped in relationship to one another for can be shaped for the good. So we don't have to talk about that now. I just wanted to mention that as a corollary to a lot of what we've been speaking about, because it's one of the things that got lost in Protestantism to a great degree. It needs to be recovered as we look to the future. As we look to the future, I want to see the religious traditions that I know best and have been part of. Methodism is one of them. Unitarian Universalism is another. Um, to in intensify the vitality of the arts of and of ritual and community life as they shape human souls to be uh, alive, alert, compassionate, engaged um, in this this world in a way that receives all that is the terrible and the beautiful. Um, the harmful and the good and responds to it in a way that medicates harm, repairs injustice and evil, and advances vitality and life and beauty. I think you have just enunciated um, a theology that is so true to you and that many people are drawn to, um, mm -hmm. and I'm certainly among them. <laughs> so a, a big thank you to you, Rebecca. Um, and let me thank you, Jay, for this time and this conversation and for a uh, friendship that began when we were graduate students and right. uh, we have uh, touched base occasionally over the years through the American Academy of Religion. Your work, um, your dedication, your spirit that does integrate the arts and social justice and religion <laughs> and the earth so beautifully in a multi-religious way. Um, I appreciate you, and I'm and I'm grateful that we had this chance for this conversation. Thank you. Well, I am too. I am too. Thank you so much. Blessings. Blessings. Conversations in Process is a co-production of the Cobb Institute and Open Horizons. If you'd like to support this podcast and help us realize our aim to advance wisdom, harmony, and the common good please consider making a donation by visiting cob.institute. That's cob.institute and clicking on the donate button.